I hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. Um, Thanksgiving's great and all, but like, can I be real for a minute? Like, Thanksgiving's just a stepping stone holiday because it's all about Christmas, at least for me, all right? I love Christmas. I love everything about it. I love the Christmas music, and we got to sing some this morning, which was fantastic. I love the nostalgic Christmas movies, all of them. It doesn't matter as long as it's Christmas-oriented. I love holiday baking day. My wife's family makes this peach spice cake that is like Christmas in your mouth, and it's all things good and perfect. Uh, I want the like Christmas village snow globe imaginary magical Christmas. Like that's, that's what I want. Um, and I think you do too, because I've seen the Instagram pictures and some of y'all have had Christmas trees up since before Halloween, right? And that is not normal, all right? I think we are all ready for Christmas to get here, really because we want 2020 to be done, <laughs> Like, it is just that type of year, and we have these images of Christmas and what it's going to be like, and we want it to be magical, and we want it to be all these things, but Christmas is normally a little messy, right? I mean, first off, family's normally involved in Christmas, so what can go wrong, right? Um, But some of you, like, we all kind of have enough divorce in our family to, to know what it's like to have split Christmases now, and to, to maybe have a custody battle and you don't get to spend Christmas with who you really want to. Some of us have lost jobs this year, and, and it's messy. Some of us have lost income at least this year. It's a little messy. Some of you have lost a family member this year. And so now you hit the holidays and you're forced to reorient yourself with these Christmas traditions without that special someone being there. And it's just like emotions that you thought were healed are now coming out again. Like it is not easy. That's the Christmas that we walk into. And what we're going to do over the series is we're going to look at Christmas and our messy Christmas and it might not be the first messy Christmas ever. In fact, the very first Christmas had its fair share of mess. There was a lot going on. It was very chaotic. And that's what we're going to do over this Christmas season as we look at the first Christmas. So we're going to go back to the beginning of Christmas. And if I said, what's the beginning of the Christmas story? You probably have ideas of like shepherds and angels and mangers and like this whole thing. We're not talking about that today, all right? We're actually going back before that. And we're going to talk about a passage that like when we read this together, you're probably going to be like, man, Daniel must be an idiot. (laughs) Like, why would you preach on this passage? This makes no sense at all. Um, Better yet, why would Matthew even write this passage as he kicks off his epic Christmas story narrative? Why would he even include this? Um, Now, if I stood up here and read this passage, it would be incredibly boring, and it's not going to be fun. So instead of having me read this passage, I called in some help from some friends of mine. They're going to read this passage for us. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Here's the Christmas story. 
The Genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, father of Isaac. Isaac, father of Jacob. Jacob, father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Paris and Zerah. His mother was Tamar. Paris, the father of Hezron. He's not the father of Ram. Ram, father of Amadab, <laughs> the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Solomon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Isaiah. Uzina, the father of Jonathan. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Um, Amon, the father of Joseph. And Joseph. The father of Jeconia and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. 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 After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel, the father of Zerubbabel. 13. Zerubbabel, the father of Habihud, Habihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Matsam, Matsam, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, the Babylon, and the 14 from the exile to the Messiah. All right, let's give them a round of applause, right? So those are my friends and some of my family members from really all around the world. And so thank you all for doing that. It's a whole lot cuter as they say those names and if they mess them up than if I do it. So really, I just wanted to get out of having to read that passage and that's why I had you all do it. But I told them, hey, just just go with it. Don't worry about trying to to say it. Just, Just read it. So here's this section from Matthew. Matthew's writing down to write his epic story about who Jesus is. He's writing his gospel, 
and this is how you start it? Like, really? Like, what, what is going on? Why is this compelling? Why is this even in here? And I'm convinced that we will always miss the point of this passage if we don't understand Matthew's three Ps. Well, what are Matthew's three Ps? I'm glad that you asked. I'm, I'm going to tell you that today. How cool is that? Okay. Um, we will always miss the point of this genealogy if we don't understand first Matthew's perspective. Okay, everyone has a perspective. We all come from somewhere. And, and Matthew, like, who is this guy? What's he doing? Okay, so first off, he's, he's a Jew, all right? He's a Jewish guy. He grew up in the Middle East, and he has an Eastern uh, worldview. He has an Eastern mindset. Now, chances are, if you are here in this room, you probably have a Western mindset, It's really Greek, Hellenistic, but this changes the way that we do everything. This changes the way that we see ourselves in an individual manner as opposed to like a communal, familiar manner. This changes the way that we talk about truth, how we convey truth. Like, for example, if you, like one of the high school kids in here, like surely by now you've had to write a research paper, right? You're going, like, oh, groaning. Okay, like, you're going to start off, you got to get, what is that thesis statement? What's that one thing that you're trying to say? Okay, and then you're going to have a a supporting paragraph. You're going to build, like, body paragraphs that all of the evidence supports that first, you know, section in the paragraph. Like, we're going to do this in a outline format. That's how we're going to convince people of our truth that we're trying to convey, right? Matthew is not like us. He didn't learn like us. He doesn't communicate like us. He doesn't communicate truth like we do. He's going to communicate story. He's going to communicate truth through story, through narrative. And he's going to do this in ways that he's going to drop hints like Hansel and Gretel with the breadcrumbs so that you discover it. And then you go along, you discover something more and you discover more so that you yourself as the reader starts to unpack. Oh, here's the point. Oh, this is what we're talking about. Okay. Matthew has a a perspective that's very different from us. So this is kind of like, um, imagine you have a best friend, right? You, got, you watch the same movies together, you grew up together, you have the same, same frame of reference, same context. A situation can happen, you could quote like two words from a movie line, and your best friend is like, ah, oh, like totally, like yes, you're on the same page, you get it. Because those two words have this history, and it has this perspective and this frame of reference that you get, because you're, you're on the same page, you're thinking the same way. So Matthew, one of the things you need to know about him, because he's Jewish, is he grew up memorizing scripture, like hardcore, okay? Depending on how far he got in his Jewish studies, like probably the first five books of the Bible, the the Torah, probably could recite the whole thing word for word. Like that's how much he knows scripture. And so as he's communicating truth via narrative, he's able to drop a name. And it means so much. Everyone's like, uh, oh, 
okay, I know the frame of reference, I know the story, because I know the story behind the name. We will miss this passage if we don't understand the first P, Michael's, or Matthew's perspective. But we'll also miss this passage if we don't understand his purpose. So we need his perspective, but we also need his purpose. What's he trying to do here? He's trying to communicate that Jesus is the Messiah. He is this long-awaited Messiah that his faith tradition has been searching for and waiting for. And so he's saying, hey, this guy, the guy that was crucified, he rose again, and he's the one that we've been waiting for this whole time. So that's his purpose in writing that, but he's going to do it using familiar tactics and using familiar stories. And that's why he uses this thing called a genealogy, all right? Um, and so as he's doing this, like, there's, there's a point to the genealogy. There's an agenda behind the genealogy. You take this one in Matthew, and you take the genealogy of Jesus in Luke, and they're different, and that's not to say like, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. It's like, oh, you can't believe it. No, no, no. Like they're different on purpose. They're accentuating different things. Matthew is trying to tell the story of Jesus in a way that's very personal to him. And we'll get to that. But he's going to do it using a genealogy. And normally a genealogy, you want to anchor this whole thing in royalty. Okay. So we, they knew that the Messiah had to come from the line of David, okay? Like Israel's best king, it's going to come from his line. Whatever you do, the Messiah's got to be related to him somehow. So there's, there's a point to establish the royal line of Jesus to it. Um, normally, <laughs> you would want your genealogy to accentuate the, the bloodline, as well. Like, you don't really, you want your Messiah to come from good Jewish stock, right? Like, it's hard to make a case for a, a Jewish Messiah that, like, oh yeah, our family married into it, and we were, like, really foreigners, and this isn't really our thing, but, but now, now we're a part of it, okay? It's like, that's not the way to do this. And so here, as we start to see the, the, the final P, so we understand his perspective, we understand his purpose. Once we start to understand the people that Matthew lists in here, this is where he totally breaks this tradition. Like he does a terrible job of establishing the bloodline. Like you should be doing like a Harry Potter House of Black type thing right now. Like you want this like pure Jewish Messiah and he goes way off, off base. So who were these people? Who are the people that come up in here? And you're going to see this rhythm, this pattern as we're reading it. We'll start off like with some easy names that we know in, in verse 2. It talks about Abraham being the father of Isaac, and Isaac being the father of Jacob, Jacob and Judah, and Judah, Perez, whose mother was Tamar. And like, boom, boom, boom. Huh. Oh, like we just changed the pattern. We changed the rhythm there. Well, that... That was weird just because of that, but it's also weird because you don't list women in a genealogy. Like, it just, it, it doesn't happen, for better or worse. This is a patriarchal culture, and, and women don't have standing. Like, 
even in our own country, like women didn't have the right to own property until 1848, right? Like this is, like we've come a long ways. This is all evidence of the fall and we are working on fixing that. And when we talk to Thomas Jefferson, we're gonna compel him to put women in the sequel, right? And if you don't get that, hit the hard button and tell people online what that was all about. So like we're getting there, but he lists these women first off, not one, not two, not three, four women. But here's the deal. These are all foreign women. None of these are Jewish women. Like these are people very much in scripture, very much in the story, very much a part of this tradition. But if you're trying to establish a royal bloodline to the Messiah, this is not how you do it. So what's going on? We're going to look at each one of these like super fast, okay? You could do a whole sermon on each and every one of these women. But we're going to do this and we're going to see what is Matthew doing? What are these breadcrumbs that he's laying out? And what do we have to learn from it? So first woman, we have, we've already said her name, Tamar, right? She's from a place called Ur. And so we have Tamar, we have her husband, um, husband dies, okay. So you know like all the boring stuff in the Bible, like in Leviticus that we don't like to read about? Um, God actually set up what's supposed to happen if, if this happens. So we have a woman who doesn't have rights and doesn't have standing, right? She doesn't have a, a child to take care of her. So she doesn't have like a retirement plan now. So what happens? Well, God set it up. The brother of dead husband, the brother marries her and can give her a kid. And now like she's provided for and taken care of. Cool. Brilliant. Okay. Love that. So brother marries her, dies. Okay. All right. Got another brother. He marries her, dies. So Judah, the dad, is like, I'm not giving Tamar my last son. I don't know what's in the water. What's going on? She can't have him. So we have this like refusal to, to follow the faith, to do the right thing. He's like, I'm not doing it. So there's this like crazy R-rated story of what happens, of how Tamar gets pregnant from her dead husband's father and it's crazy and he's like oh you're pregnant like off off with her head type thing and she's like oh by the way it's yours and it's this like crazy mic drop situation and and judah gets to the point he's like she is more righteous than i am like he sees the error in his ways and he's like i've messed up she's right i'm wrong and she ends up being the hero of this story. So I want you to see this story as, um, this is a story about the protection of a woman. This is a story about protection of a widow. This is a story of the protection of a, a foreigner. And Tamar is all three, right? And it's, it's this crazy story that Matthew, as he's trying to say, hey, this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus is about. This whole kingdom of heaven is starting right now, and this is what it's about. He uses this story in the genealogy. He uses this story in the narrative. There's the breadcrumb, okay? 
So, second story, Rahab. Um, she's from a place called Jericho. Jericho is in the, the promised land. You know, we, we hear about the promised land, right? So the Israelites have just spent 40 years wandering in the desert. They're about to go into the promised land. Finally, they send some spies into Jericho's big walled city. I don't know how this happened. I would love to know. It's probably very comical, and you could make a mini documentary about it. These Jewish spies end up in the house of Rahab, who, uh, she has a unique profession. Um, She works a lot at night and deals in, like, cash transactions, maybe. So I don't know how they got there. I don't know why they're there. It's probably very funny, and they're probably very awkward being there. But the king of Jericho knows that they're there. The whole city's talking about it. Like, hey, there's these spies and the Israelites are getting close. And so king of Jericho's like, hey, Rahab, I hear you have these spies. She, she lies. Like here in the Bible, she lies. And she's like, yeah, they were here. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what the story was. They left. They went out the city like that way. You know, maybe you can go get them. Meanwhile, she's helping them out the window and down the wall to escape. And she's like, look, I just lied to you. I just saved you. Now, when you all come in, we've heard about your God. We know how powerful your God is. Protect me. Protect my family. Keep us safe, because I know what your God can do. And, and sure enough, they make this arrangement, and her and her family are, are preserved. Matthew uses this story in telling the narrative and the coming of Jesus. So I, I want you to see this in contrast, this this foreign woman and her faith and believing who God is and what he can do in contrast to the Israelites who just spent 40 years in disbelief and not believing how strong and powerful their God is, all right? And then um, I also want you to see this story in light of belief in the Most High God is expanding to the nations. Like this whole thing is about blessing the nations and the nations are starting to hear about the fame and the reputation of God. Matthew uses this story in proclaiming the coming Messiah. The third one, uh, Ruth. Ruth is from a place called Moab, east of the Dead Sea. Ruth has her whole own book in the Old Testament. So there's a lot there. We can't cover all of it. Here's like the, the crazy down and dirty story of it. We have Ruth, husband, Jewish boy dies. This happens a lot, apparently. So he dies. So it's just Ruth and her mother-in-law, more or less. What could go wrong? <laughs> Actually, it, it goes really right. And so her mother-in-law is like, look, Ruth, I, I can't provide for you. Like, I'm too old to get another husband. I'm not going to be able to have another child that could be your husband. Or She's like, I, I, I can't provide for you. You're, you're young. Go back to your people. Go back to your family. Go back to your gods. And, and you can probably still get another husband there that can take care of you. And Ruth is like, oh, heck no. She's like, where you go, I will go. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. And so this is this like crazy story of faith and devotion. And like there's a whole lot that happens and her mother-in-law like ends up working it out to where like she does find this husband. And it's more of like 
a PG-13 rated version than our first story that was like definitely R. Um, but like, like good happens and, and her, her devotion to her mother-in-law, this foreigner's devotion to family and to hard work and to trust like ends up being the thing that is celebrated in this story. It, it's an immigrant story of devotion. It's a story of being an outsider and coming into faith in the Hebrew God. Matthew uses this story in proclaiming the coming of Jesus and what this kingdom of heaven is all about. Our last story in verse 6, like, we actually don't even get a name, right? We don't even hear what her name is. You might be able to guess it. So let's, let's, there's this section. It says, David was the father of Solomon. So we're talking King David here, all right? David is the father of Solomon, whose mother was or had been Uriah's wife, who is Solomon's mom and David's wife? Anyone know here what her name was? Bathsheba, right? Now, that's a name that even in our culture, thousands of years later, like still has frame of reference. Like it still kind of means something when, when you say that name. So Matthew brings up this story. And this is like the worst, the worst of the worst, basically, for the nation of Israel. This is... Israel's rock star king and his period of lowest of lows. Like he goes through sin after sin, ranging from lust to lying to adultery to to murder, right? Like it is not a good moment in the chapter of Israel. And if you're trying to establish a a royal bloodline genealogy here, it's like, oh, dang, we're going to talk about this right now? Like, did you really have to bring that up? And he doesn't even bring up her name, right? How does he do it? He, he doesn't say Bathsheba. He says, no, that's not even David's wife. That's Uriah's wife. Like, David stole her. Like, he's just, like, putting the screws into him of this is what this story, this is what really happened. This is part of our story. And so, I want you to see this as a story of of redemption. Like this is David's worst moment, but yet it's still a part of the story and he's still included in here. I also want you to see it as um, David wasn't off fighting battles when the whole thing first happened with Bathsheba, um, where he should have been. You know who was out fighting the battle? Uriah the Hittite. Not Uriah the Jew, Uriah the Hittite. The foreigner is out fighting the battle on behalf of Israel when Israel did not, where the king of Israel didn't. And so it is this like foreign devotion, allegiance to Yahweh, but it's also like this is David's worst moment and, and like remember what God did through that and how he healed it and how he brought David back to a place to be a man after his own heart. Matthew brings this story up to say this is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. So, so why do this? Why, why dig up these bones? Why 
air Israel's dirty laundry, like, Matthew, what are you doing here? And I think it's very specific on why Matthew uses these names to tell the story the way that he does. I think this is personal for Matthew. I think this story is personal to him. What was Matthew's profession before he met Jesus? What was he doing? He was a tax collector. Who's he collecting taxes for? The Roman Empire, like the invaders, the ones that came in and took over, like he is working for the enemy. Like, not only is he working for them, he's also exploiting his own people to take their money and give it to the evil empire. Like, at some point, Matthew sold his soul and, like, is, he's out. You think anyone wants anything to do with Matthew? He is the outsider. He is the one that has experienced the lowest of the lows. He is the one that is on the outside, and suddenly Jesus comes in, and Jesus calls him to faith. Jesus calls him to be a part of this thing called the kingdom. He invites Matthew, the worst guy, the worst of the worst, to be a part of this Christmas story. Who's a part of this messy Christmas family? Yeah, it's, it's people like Matthew. He uses these stories to help retell his own story. That's the difference that Jesus makes in his life and in our lives. And so, is this you? Like, is this personal to you? Is this the year that you finally accept the love and the grace and the pursuit of Jesus in your life? Is this the year that you finally say, yeah, yeah, I love him and I will give my life to him and I will accept his grace and I will accept his forgiveness. Is this personal for you? Are you a part of this Christmas story? I think this is personal, but I also think this message is practical. Like, Matthew's writing to help his fellow Jews to reframe what they think and how they operate. He's trying to help them go, no, these stories, they've been a part of our story this whole time. Like, our faith, this faith tradition is about blessing people, is about including people, it is about protecting people and protecting those that are vulnerable in our society. And so it's practical in the fact that Matthew is trying to help his fellow Jews understand, like, no, this is for us. We need to remember who is a part of this messy Christmas family. Practically, this Christmas, do, do we need to remember that Jesus is here for, for the outsider? Do we need to remember that, like, it's the person that would be so awkward in this room, like, that's who this is for, like, the one that doesn't feel like they belong. And actually, if you sat next to them, you might be like, oh my gosh, this is awkward, like, what are they doing here? No, that's who needs to be here. That is who the Christmas message is for. Do we need to be reminded practically that our message 
Like Christmas is for the imperfect. It's for those that, that don't have a clean record. It's for those that don't have it all figured out. It's for those that, that are, are vulgar and crass. Like Jesus came for them and Jesus died for them. Is this Christmas, do we need to be reminded that practically Christmas is for the broken? It's for those that are sad, for those that are lonely, it's for those that have experienced loss and grief and depression. And practically, do we need to be reminded that we should be putting their needs ahead of our own needs? Practically, do we need to remember who was a part of this Christmas? Matthew is screaming (laughs) at his readers in a very unique way. Like, they would have got it. They would have got this message as he lists these names. They would have felt the weight of this. Matthew, Matthew's saying, remember these stories. Matthew's saying, remember my story. Because no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter the life you've lived, no matter how bad and separated from God you think that you might be, he says, no, you are a part of this. Jesus came, God incarnate in the form of a baby for you. This is what we proclaim. This is what we celebrate. This is what the good news is all about. And we get to be a part of that kingdom this Christmas. May this message be both personal and practical for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for obscure texts um, that we may not understand, but has so much truth and, and so much beauty behind it. God, help us to understand you better. Help us to understand what it means to love you and to follow you this Christmas. God, this year is is a mess. We come limping in, needing your grace and needing your forgiveness and needing your good news. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to be agents of that, to go out into the world and to show people to show the broken, to show the imperfect, to show the outsiders that they have a place in this story. Give us that courage. It's in Jesus' name that we ask all these things. Amen.